Episode 41. This is going to be a good one. I have got Marty Mariotto from the TV show Mountain Man. I believe he's probably the most popular of out of all of them on the show. Uh, let's welcome him and so much more. Here we go. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Western Huntsman Podcast. My name is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Time Studio in Hayden, Idaho. Guys, thanks for tuning in. I sure appreciate you. Um, this is uh, going to be an interesting episode. We've got uh, a lot going on, a lot going on, and uh, this is uh, the, the the fun part of this episode is I have a, stu- a super cool guy, Marty Mariotto, from the show Mountain Man. If you guys watch that show. Uh, he's the guy up in Alaska that goes into the backcountry of the Arctic, basically, for, for months at a time and spends the entire time trapping and hunting moose and building cabins and um, uh, just uh, does this crazy, uh, has this crazy lifestyle that I'm super fond of and kind of jealous of, honestly. Uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, way and perspective of living life, and he's got some great perspectives to share with us. And it was great getting him on the show. So uh, I want to thank him. But before we get to that, there's a couple things that we need to address, especially for my people here in Idaho. We've got uh, something going on with the, the – we've talked about it a lot on the show. We've got a wolf problem, right? Okay. We, we had these wolves introduced into Idaho. And it took, it took 10 years or so to get them delisted. Plenty of time for the wolves to, uh, you know, reproduce and and breed beyond what the, uh, the the plan and the goal was for the the wolves here in Idaho, and they're essentially out of control and to to the to the tune of three times as many as the Idaho uh, Idaho Fish and Game determined what would be a manageable number for the state. So that number was initially 300 to 500 wolves, right? And we're north of 1,500 as of the last count. Man, that is a huge difference. And and so I bring this up because I've seen a lot of people talking with it being elk season. It was September, and now we're going in, getting getting into the rifle seasons. And there is a lot of discussion on social media regarding wolves and wolves derailing people's hunting of um, of elk. And they're getting into areas where people are complaining a lot about seeing there's more wolf sign than elk sign, uh, or we were on some wool, or we were on some elk, and all of a sudden we heard wolves howling, so the elk kind of boogied on out, and uh, we, we just a lot of that kind of chatter going on. So we all know that's a problem. We all I think that there is basically a, a general consensus that for the most part. It's not that us as Idaho hunters are opposed to having wolves on the landscape um, or, or, or not even that. Maybe, maybe it's more of a we've accepted the fact 
that there are wolves on the landscape. But what we can't accept is to what extent and the number in which they have grown to. We, we all generally are on the same page with that. We all feel like there are too many wolves. Uh, they've gotten out of control. Uh, we, we're seeing a, a huge reduction in elk and, and deer, specifically mule deer. Uh, and, and, and a lot of this can be summed up as uh, or, or, or basically the, the finger can point directly to the wolves. And the wolves have created a lot of havoc on our Idaho landscapes and our elk. And I, I, I do. I think that that's that's a pretty uh, pretty agreeable way of putting it or summarizing it. The the thing is is that that, that we have uh, in the Foundation for Wildlife Management is we have a solution to this. The Foundation for Wildlife Management is an organization started by elk hunters frustrated with the growing wolf populations to create trappers that are uh, they have the skill, they have the tools, and they have the know how to get out there and get these wolf numbers under control and up until about this year uh, the the trappers have not been able to trap as many wolves as pups that were born in the same year so it's they're still growing the wolf numbers are still growing and it sounds like maybe this year we might actually trap as many that are born Uh, but that's it's going to be really hard to determine that so the point i'm trying to get at is is we've had this issue and we've got this solution. And by the way, if you're a member of Foundation for Wildlife Management and you do successfully trap a wolf or you hunt a wolf and are successful and tagged out and you do this through legal means, the Foundation for Wildlife Management will reimburse you for that wolf and you keep the pelt. So that reimbursement can range anywhere from $500 to $1,000. It's a great organization. These are the guys that are actually getting out there and getting it done, helping us as elk hunters uh, achieve the same goal. We're, we're, tr- we're all trying to get to the same goal, a balanced wildlife system on our, on our uh, landscape out there. So here's where the issue comes. As they're out there setting traps, they're getting wolves in their traps, we've got hunters out there shooting these wolves. It's creating a major problem. It is it, it is going to deter these successful and highly skilled wolf trappers from continuing to do that. Which, if and, and I'm going to talk about this with Justin here in just a minute, but the the trapping is really the only way to effectively get these numbers down. We got to stop doing that. If you're out there and you see a wolf in a trap, do not shoot that wolf. Leave it alone. Walk away, leave it alone. Don't take pictures. Don't, uh, you know, just just don't don't get close because Justin is going to explain to you why that is really really bad for elk hunters. Okay, that is not bad. It's it's bad for the trapper, but it's really bad for us elk hunters when people do that. Picture this: you you got yourself an elk tag, right? And you spent all year e-scouting. And in the summer months, you went up and set some cameras. You scouted the mountain. And season finally shows up. Let's say it's uh, September. And, and you've got an archery tag. And you're going in with, uh, with the Idaho A tag and, uh, and hunting elk. You get in. Let's say you, you walk four miles back into the backcountry. Uh, and you're base camped somewhere or whatever. And, and, but you, you're, you're four miles back. You, you start cranking on your bugle and you call in a bull and you whack him. Right there, bam, you're successful. You notch your tag. You start breaking that elk down and you start, um, I, I'm going to say, put this into, into the context that you're solo hunting. And so you've got a long pack out by yourself. It's a pain in the butt. 
but you start loading quarters in your pack and start trucking them back to the truck. This is going to take you three or four trips. Finally, let's say you shot this thing at 10 o'clock in the morning, and by 3 o'clock in the morning, it, you know, basically the next morning, uh, you finally are hauling out the last load. You get the rack back to the truck. You put everything in the truck. The culmination has come to this. You've got a loaded elk in the back of your truck. You've got a nice set of antlers. You've got all this meat. You've been, you've been working to get this elk out for, you know, you're going on 24 hours here. It's a lot of work. You're wore out. You're tired. You spent a lot of money to get to this point. You spent a lot of time and effort to get to this point. And then you realize, man, like a mile back, I, I still have my trail camera uh, up on the tree. You still got your camera set. So you're like, okay, I'm here. Let's just get this done before I head home. And you run back, go back that mile, grab your camera, come back, and somebody ripped off your elk in the back of your truck. They took all the meat. They took the, the antlers. You, you got nothing. You got nothing but maybe some pictures from your phone. Imagine the disappointment and imagine how terrible you would feel that somebody came up while you were retrieving your last camera and stole everything that you had worked for months to achieve. That is how a trapper is going to feel when he shows up to his trap and finds that some hunter has shot that wolf. He doesn't have the pelt. He doesn't have... It's no longer salvageable. There's a giant 300 wind mag hole blown in the side of it. It, there's, it's rotted. It, it, guys, that that would be devastating. And that's what's happening. That is devastating these trappers. And they're getting irritated to the point in which they want to quit doing it, which leaves us with nobody to help us cull these wolves. We've got to stop. From, the, the, this show is pleading with you hunters out there to stop messing with trappers and their trap lines and, and their sets. Guys, we've got to leave them alone. I know that if you're out there and you see a wolf standing there and I saw somebody say, well, what am I supposed to do? Uh, look across the ridge and, and uh, you know, try to figure out if, it's, if the wolf is stuck in a trap. Guys, it's, it's super obvious. It's obvious. The wolf's not just going to be standing there. It's going to be tugging at that trap. It's going to be laid down in a weird way. He, you'll know if that thing is in a trap. If it just stays there, wolves don't just hang out like that. They, they, you will know if it's in a trap. Make sure it's not in a trap before you pull the trigger and grow up about it if you're one of those guys that says stuff like that. Really seriously, I, you know, I, I, I hate it when it, it like makes me feel like I'm, a, I, I'm being a jerk or whatever, but, but we've got to grow up with this. These trappers are on our side and they're helping us. Okay, enough with that rant because really what I, who I want you guys to hear from is Justin Webb. Justin is the executive director for the Foundation for Wildlife Management. He's a wolf trapper. He's a very successful wolf trapper. He's an elk hunter. He's an elk hunting guide. I was able to catch him early Sunday morning before he left to go help another hunter, uh, before he left to go guide uh, an elk hunter up here in North Idaho. And we were able to have a quick discussion uh, in this intro before we get to the conversation with Marty uh, about this very topic. And I'm going to go ahead and get him on the line um, this was recorded a couple of days ago, but let's uh, just plug that in right now. All right. Good morning, Jim. Hey, Justin. How you doing, buddy? 
Oh, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Hey, not too bad for a Sunday morning. I appreciate yeah, you. Yeah, I hear you. I appreciate you taking a few minutes before. Are you heading out to guide for elk, or what are you heading out to I, do? I am. I'm actually uh, greasing up my boots here, making sure everything's ready to go, and headed out to guide elk hunter this week. All right. Well, good for you. Good for you. So yeah. I, uh, I, I'm glad you came on. I uh, we we talked about it. I know I know you're busy, and and I've got uh, kind of a short window before this episode gets out. But I think this is a great episode to get this out. Uh, we've got a lot more listeners than last time you were on the show. And so I, I was hoping real quick, could you explain for the audience, uh, you're, you're the executive director for Foundation for Wildlife Management. And uh, can you explain the Foundation for Wildlife Management in, in a quick nutshell? Sure, you bet. We're, we're just a, uh, started out as a group of elk hunters who were really tired of seeing all the negative effects of the expanding wolf population in our area. This all started back in 2011. We ended up getting our 501c3 status in 2012. And what we do is we bring those who want wolves managed uh, together with those who have the ways and means of getting the job done. And it's been a pretty successful program. Um, we work with the Fish and Game Department to identify areas where our ungulate populations, that's our deer, elk, and moose, uh, numbers have been negatively impacted by our growing, ever-expanding wolf population. Yes. And we provide um, expense reimbursement to help keep folks in the woods harvesting wolves. And, and through that program, we've removed over 875 wolves um, to date. And some some uh, more that I know have been harvested and about to be turned in. So we're excited. We're about to break the 900 mark there. And um uh, fortunately, th- this may be the very first year um, to date where we will have removed the number of wolves that were born during that given season. And so that's a that's a huge hurdle that we're excited to to finally be jumping through. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, that that is exactly what we need. That's that's where how we're going to be able to create this balance. Um and just, you know, just as as kind of a summary for, for the listeners out there, if you are in Idaho or you hunt Idaho and you have noticed an issue with the declining elk numbers and, and other ungulate populations and you are not a member of Foundation for Wildlife Management, this is the the vessel that will provide the solutions to help get these the the wolf numbers and our ungulate populations balanced out to how we uh, you know would like to see them. And so, essentially, what what Justin is saying is, if you are a member, it's a thirty five dollar membership. It's very inexpensive to be a member. And if if you are a member and you do harvest a wolf through trapping through hunting, um. And, and and you keep those receipts and you you file those or you submit those to the Foundation for Wildlife Management. You can get reimbursed uh, anywhere from five hundred to a thousand dollars. And that's the amount is is based on where they're at. Is that correct, Justin? It is where they're at in time of year. You know, uh, long term goal. I think that we would love to see uh, over a thousand dollars per wolf statewide year round. But uh, you know, the membership numbers are are uh, a big portion of what funds the program, um, along with our fundraising banquets that we've started different chapters for uh, throughout the state. Mm-hmm. But um, so uh, you know, the more money that we can generate. 
the higher that reimbursement amount can be. And our and our goal there is to try to offset um, trappers' expenses specifically. Hunters uh, certainly do have expense. We've got guys that come all the way here from halfway around the country or, or halfway around the world even to target wolves um, as a member. And if they harvest a wolf, they send us a copy of their fish and game check-in slip when they harvest that wolf and a copy of their expense receipts, and we mail them a check. They get to keep the wolf. But um, one yeah. of the things that we've noticed over time is that our trappers have such a huge investment they spend all summer scouting they uh, have to identify the the travel corridors the the crossing routes um, and then they spend all winter every 72 hours most of them every 48 hours running their trap lines and and i for myself just to give you an example i run a about a 75 mile uh trap line in the winter months and um it's just a lot of work you're you're out there breaking trail and and uh, fighting the snow and, and a lot of conditions and there's a ton of expense involved there so the goal is to be able to get our reimbursement amounts high enough that our trappers don't have out-of-pocket expenses to assist us in keeping our wolf numbers uh, at a manageable level yeah exactly and and that's going to bring us to this next point that I, I feel like is really important and i'm this is why i'm glad you came on uh because because like you said when when hunters are out there, and whether they're just kind of a weekend type hobbyist hunter, or or they're they're uh, extremely invested in hunting as a lifestyle, we've all noticed and we all see the complaining about the wolves deteriorating our our elk population specifically, and and the reason for that is Idaho was initially set up as uh, or, or I guess determined to be able to manage for about three to five hundred wolves and we are north of 1200 the last time I checked yeah so, 1541 1, was last summer's count wow yeah so that's incredible and so in some of these units when people are going out and and they're they're wondering where the elk are at that's this is why. And so the foundation for wildlife management is critical to this. So that brings us to the reason why I wanted to have you on on the show. Uh, I want to talk about some issues that have, have been coming up lately regarding hunters or, or other folks in the wood woods messing with uh, trap lines, messing with wolves that are caught in traps and and shooting those wolves. Or, or messing with the area of the of where a trap is set, putting scent all over the place. All, all of these things, let's talk about that for a minute. Okay, sure. You know, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of give a quick rundown of how a trapper becomes successful so that people fully grasp the concept of what we're discussing. That's a great so, idea. Yeah, let's do that. So for, for myself personally, I spend all of my summer months that I used to spend hiking the high mountain lakes and taking my family fishing and doing these different things that I really enjoy. I now spend those months scouting for wolves, scouting and GPSing uh, wolf droppings in the roadways, taking my dogs and running them down the road and letting them show me where the wolves have crossed. I spent a ton of time identifying the perfect spots to be able to set a trap. And what a lot of people don't understand about wolves and the reason they're so difficult to hunt is because they travel so far so quickly. They've got a 250 square mile home range and our average pack size is only seven. So what that, you know, um, computes to is it's really difficult to find the perfect set location because those wolves are often on a three to five week cycle in their 250 square mile home range. Mm -hmm. So a trapper has to do a ton of work to be able to identify exactly where he can put a trap and make a wolf step on a silver dollar size pan. That's, that's the basics of it. It takes a lot of time and effort and work and energy to go into that. Then 
you've got thousands of dollars invested in gear. You, you have tons of uh, time invested in prepping all of that gear because everything has to be descented and scent free. The way that you build your sets are done, uh, you know, a specific way. You can only be at your set location a certain amount of time. Otherwise, you know, they say each minute that you're at a set location is a full day. A wolf won't go near your set. So there's mm. a ton that's invested in trying to make sure all these sets are scent free and that they're set up just perfect and only in particular areas that's going to be successful. You have to set on sign to catch wolves. You can't uh, draw them very far or attract them very far because most of our wolves are not hungry. They're, uh, you know, in, in one day, um, they can travel 10 to 20 miles off the mountain range and drop into where our game populations are. So our wolves aren't really hungry. You have to really work at identifying the proper set locations. So you go through all that effort and you set up all your gear. And when I catch a wolf, my very best odds of catching more wolves or, or a number of wolves throughout the season is based on the very first catch that I make. And when I catch a wolf, I'm, I'm very cautious. I get in, I get out, I dispatch that wolf with, with no blood and no hair and additional scent left at the site, and I get out of there. When I set, I always set numerous traps, and this is the reason why. The last thing the pack remembers is this is where that wolf was. And that night or the following night, that pack is going to come back in search of that wolf. If they come back and they don't find it, they're going to be searching around and I pick up another one or two. Mm -hmm. When I get in there and I pull those wolves out as quickly and cautiously as possible, I get in, I get out, and I leave the area completely. That night or the next night, the wolf pack will come back again and I'll pick up more. I've, I've actually caught six in a row back to back doing that. Um, this last year, I caught four back to back doing that. That's so amazing. so coming up to the issue at hand, what's taking place? Um, you know, some folks are so passionate about um, their frustration with wolves that as soon as they see one, they don't stop to think, is this wolf in a trap? They just jump out of their truck and shoot it or they are hiking down a ridge and they see it bouncing around. And so they shoot it. And what happens is when you shoot a wolf with a high powered rifle, you're spreading bone, blood, hair, hide, everything around the whole set location. Then they realize that it's in a trap and they hike out of there and the wolf pack drops in there that evening. And let's say the trapper was just there that morning and he checked his trap that day. Well, mm -hmm. Then the wolf got caught. Then the folks come in. They kill the wolf. The wolf is laying there dead. It's this time of year, this year in particular, it's too warm out there to leave that hide overnight dead without having issues with it spoiling and, and green billing and losing the whole pelt. So not only is the wolf being wasted completely, but then the pack comes in, sees the dead wolf. They leave the entire area and refuse to come back all season. So the trapper shows up. Here's a dead wolf that's now wasted. His set's destroyed. His pack that he scouted so hard for to identify the perfect set location is now gone, and he has to start all over from scratch. This is really disheartening this even happens. I mean, this – man. Okay. So I, I want to put that out there because I, you've posted a few things on, on Facebook that I've been, I've been really watching and sharing, and, 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 and it's, it feels like some people are not getting this message. Oh, if I see a wolf, if it's in a trap or not, I'm going to shoot it. I get the sentiment. I understand the sentiment. But if you're frustrated with the wolf situation, you are making it worse by killing that wolf in the trap. Leave it Absolutely. alone. You've got to leave it alone, guys. 
You, you, you have to, because these trappers, when we're all done hunting and, and we're sitting on a cozy couch at home and it's, it's, it's Christmas and, and, and winter set in and we're, we're warm at home and everything. These trappers are still out there working their butts off for us. And, and that's what it is. And, and I, I want people to really look at it from that angle that, that as, as trappers, whether you trap or not, when you buy a membership to foundation for wildlife management, you are supporting these trappers out there doing this. And, and it gives the foundation the ability to reimburse these guys for the time and the money and the effort and the, the, the skill that it takes to actually – because trapping wolves is really the only effective tool we have to bring these wolf numbers down. I, I'm, I'm a big-time wolf hunter. I have yet to harvest a wolf as a hunter. And, and That's I, what and, I Yeah, and I try. I really try, and I'll, I'll be trying again this year. But uh, to to actually get one as a hunter, I remember you had a statistic for that. It's like three quarters of one percent or something like that of hunters actually, actually get a wolf. Yeah, the hunter success rate is less than one quarter of one percent in the state of Idaho. Okay, and, so and lower. when you come, yeah, so when you compare that to trappers' success rate at thirty-seven percent, the reason that number is so high is because when you catch a wolf and you handle it properly and you remove it properly you're going to catch more if you if you have any inclination about what you're doing you're going to catch more when you shoot a wolf it spooks them um, i had a gentleman uh, today actually make a comment that they had shot a wolf and they shot another wolf in the same location the next day that is a very rare occurrence um, mm-hmm. typically what happens wolves just learn very very quickly they're really in tune to each other and and how each other's uh, act and react and if a wolf is is being cautious or afraid the whole pack is cautious and afraid and if they see a dead wolf they most certainly aren't going to go near there if they smell wolf blood they can identify the difference between their own blood and elk blood and i i'm firm believer that uh they're going to leave that area most mm-hmm. of the time and they're not going to return and it um you know with with trapper success rate at 37 percent and hunter success rate at less than one quarter of one percent it is vital that we help our trapping community because they're the ones getting it done they're the ones that are going to make the difference they're the ones that are making it so that we actually may have harvested the number of wolves born in any given season this year and and if we start handicapping them by destroying their sets every time they catch a wolf that's going to go backwards. Exactly. And because the only the, – your payoff as a trapper is that pelt and the reimbursement. That It's not like you're getting a freezer full of meat. It's, it's not no, like – No, absolutely not. You know, you, it, we're not eating wolves out there. I, I highly you know, recommend you don't do that. <laughs> but um, your payoff is that pelt and, and, the, and the reimbursement yeah. from, the, from the foundation. And, and, and the payoff – uh, to is actually greater to all of us that are out there trying to hunt elk. I, I mean, it really is. The, the trapping of wolves is a service to elk hunters, and, and, and I need people to really understand that. And so when you're out there, what do you recommend, Justin, when, when if somebody is out there and they're hunting elk and they do see a wolf in a trap, um, how close can they get? How, uh, what, what, do you, what would you tell that individual? My first response there, Jim, if you see a wolf in a trap, turn around. 
go the other way. Get as yep. far from there as you can possibly get. Look for signs. That's one of the things that we I started posting my own set locations last year, uh, entrance and exit areas from the areas that I'm trapping. I put up a sign that has my contact information on there. If you happen to have seen a trapping sign or a trapper's sign, most of the time we're going to put our contact information on there. Go back to that sign, grab their phone number and give them a call. Say, hey, man, you you, you were successful. Congratulations. Nice work. Thank you for all your efforts. Yeah, I was going to say thank you for getting this wolf out of the landscape. Absolutely. And if they just back out of there and let us go in and do our job the right way, we can remove more wolves. Each and every wolf that we take out is 20 elk per year for an average lifespan for wolves of seven years. That's 140 elk saved for every wolf removed if you catch it in their first year, which is when most wolves are caught. They're, they wise up so quickly. It's sure. amazing. But Really amazing. So so in, in, in that perspective, guys, on, a, on an annual basis, if you see a wolf in a trap and you mess with it, you kill that wolf, you not only screwed the trapper, but you've only saved 20 elk. For that year, if 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 you leave that wolf alone and the trapper's able to come in there skillfully and trap other wolves that are coming in to find out where that wolf went, you're potentially uh, you're, you're potentially saving 100 elk in one year or, or more, depending on how many wolves the trapper's able to harvest harvest. So this you bet. is a, if you, sh- oh, if you shoot that wolf, if you shoot that wolf and, and that and that set location and you destroy that guy's set you've just killed hundreds of elk mm-hmm. that are going to go to waste exactly exactly so this is this is a major major issue and so uh i i don't know what else to say other than ju- we just need to drive that point home we we are pleading with the hunting public to leave trap sets alone leave wolves and traps alone even if you see a coyote or a, a fox in a trap leave it alone guys this is there, we, we put in so much time and effort to become successful at hunting, and, and we want to enjoy the experience and have the wild game abundant out there and, and do what we do. We can't do this if we continue to mess with the trapper sets because there is no incentive for them. They will walk away, and the wolves will take over. Uh, you're going to hear in an episode coming up something called a predator pit where the wolves annihilate the lion's share of the ungulate population, and then they leave. It's not good for the wolves, and then bears and mountain lions essentially keep the population low because they're so effective at uh, at, at killing the calves during calving season. So, so th- th- this is a critical step. We've got to get these wolf numbers down or prevent them from growing further, and this is what these trappers are doing. Please leave those sets alone. Please don't touch them. In fact, I, I don't know if there's some kind of incentive I from from the show's standpoint that I could provide that uh, if there's a way that I know that somebody may have seen a wolf in a trap and they left it alone, I'll give you an elk calling package from Phelps. I'll, I'll you know a T-shirt from the show, whatever I can. Um, what do you have any ideas on that, Justin? Is there any anything I could do from the show's perspective to help you guys and and uh, and, and provide support? Goodness, I really think that just helping educate is the biggest thing. But absolutely, if you if you're willing to to offer up some sort of a prize in in uh, exchange for a hunter uh, finding a trap set that has a wolf in it and and walking away and allowing that trapper to do his job properly, 
um, that would be excellent. Uh, you know, one, one point I really want to make so that the listeners understand, this is not a different group of people. When we when we say trappers, I can tell you, I am i don't consider myself a trapper. I'm a passionate elk hunter who was tired of seeing what I'm seeing out mm-hmm. there. So yep. I, I have chosen to forego my very favorite, most passionate uh, activity in the entire world. I love chasing big bulls. And I've chosen to forego that so that I can save some of those for my kids. Yeah. And and it's not that our elk are are disappearing. A lot of our elk have been pushed out of the backcountry where they're supposed to live and now live in the farmer's fields and down on the river bottoms and running through ag land and destroying crops and things. I get that argument all the time. Oh, well, we've got more elk now than we've ever had. It's not the case. We just no. have more elk down on the valley where your house is. Exactly. But that's, I just want to drive that home. This is not a different group of people. These are elk hunters. These are this is is folks exactly like yourself who have made the sacrifice to switch to targeting wolves so that you will still have elk to hunt. Please help them out. Stop working against them. I can tell you right now, I know three people already who have quit because of this. And we cannot afford to have the very few people who have the ways and means and tools and knowledge to get the job done giving up because you choose to be selfish and you want to be able to brag that you shot a wolf that was tied to the ground. Yeah. It, it's, it's so maddening to me. It's, it's, um, it's just, it's really disappointing. It's deflating. It's deflating as all get out because you're, you're so right. The trappers as uh, most of the people that listen to this show were hunters, right? And, and I, I keep toying with the idea of getting involved or, or getting, uh, becoming a trapper. And, and you know, what stops me? is when you describe the amount of work and effort and time and money and, and all these things that, that add up to, to really what it takes to get these wolves trapped, it, like you said, step on that on that very small trap. That's that's what prevents me because I'm, I'm so – it's such this, this huge, giant mountain to climb in my mind to become a successful trapper. So those of you that actually do that, and 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 to think that people uh, are are messing with it as hunters, trappers are our people out there helping us. They're helping them. They're helping us. They're helping our elk. They're helping our deer. And 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 honestly, they're helping the wolves. These wolves, if 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 they're overpopulated, will not survive. They, that's why they're moving into Washington. That's why they're moving into Oregon. Uh, even Northern California, I've I've heard. Um, you know, these, these things are, they are very efficient and proficient at, at breeding. And so what you guys are doing is a huge service to hunters. And and I want hunters to recognize that and understand that the only way this is going to work is if we support you by both becoming a member of the, the foundation of wildlife management and leaving those trap sets alone. Guys, if you, if you are out there and you, you see a wolf in a trap, Please stay away from it. If you could snap a, a phone scope picture, I don't I don't want you to get close enough to just take one with your phone. But if you could snap a phone scope picture from a distance and send it to me and 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 let me know that you left it alone and and especially if you were able to contact the trapper and let them know that they've got a wolf in their set, I will give you a t-shirt and a Phelps game call uh, package calling package. You've got to leave it alone though. If if you send me a picture where you're too close, it doesn't look like it's through a phone scope, and and you were within you know a hundred yards or so, or uh, you know I don't know what that distance cutoff looks like. Uh, I, I'm not going to send you anything because you got too close. 
it's it's that important to me. This is probably the most important issue Idaho hunters face. And so that, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do other than that. But uh, other than thank you, Justin, and all the other trappers out there uh, for, for what you guys do and the, and the hard work that you guys put in to get this these, these wolf numbers cold. Uh, thank, thank you, Jim. I, I can tell you that, that uh, most of the guys couldn't do it without the support that they get from fellow hunters and, and the people who, uh, you know, take the time to, to share thanks. You, you know, you mentioned that, that the reward is, is uh, this wolf belt is the only reward that they get. And I can tell you that as a, as a conservationist, my reward is that thought, that hope, that prayer that my kids are going to get to hear elk beagle in the backcountry the way I was so blessed to have got to experience. That's mm-hmm. my my big reward. But I can tell you this, when you've invested a couple thousand dollars in fuel for the season and you've got, I'm running 75 traps, each of those cost me $76 a piece, $123 each to get them set up the way that I use them. And I'm and I'm I'm running those over a 75 mile trap line. When I when I do all of that and I've blown up three snowmobiles trap and I've had to hike out tens of miles at a time in the middle of winter when there's nobody else around. When you go through all of these different experiences and you work that hard at something, yeah, it's minimal that little wolf pelt, but it means something to you when you finally accomplished it. And and taking that from a trapper, that alone is is such a huge insult to their efforts mm-hmm. it it um it's it's just really saddening i feel so bad we have we have a member that just lost three wolves because somebody shot all three of them and they all green bellied uh, uh, and uh it, so it just really takes takes the wind out of their sails and like i said before we cannot afford to be shutting down the very few people that have the ways and means to get this done it is it's there's so few of you there's so few of you that have this skill and, and it's such an essential skill to uh, our lifestyle as outdoorsmen in the state of Idaho. So I, I just want to leave the listeners with that. Guys, I, I understand the sentiment. The I, I understand the whole, you know, SSS thing. And, and, and you want to, you just want to shoot every wolf you see. And, and, but guys, we got to do this right. We have got, we do not get a lot of help. Uh, it's not like, the, the Idaho fishing game is out there, um, you know, doing whatever method they have to get, get these wolves under the, uh, under control. What we have is trappers. What we have is trappers. And every once in a while, we get a lucky hunter. And I'm hoping I'm a lucky hunter this year. But uh, <laughs> what we have is trappers. We have trappers that are, are, are actually making a positive difference with our wolf problem that can only be defined as a problem. And, and we've, we've determined that already. And so that, that's not an arguable point anymore. So please, I, you know, we, we are just pleading with you to leave those wolf sets alone. And, and Justin, thank you so much for what you do. Uh, I appreciate you taking a few minutes today to, to come on and, and talk about this issue. Thank you, Jim. I, I really appreciate the support and, and I really appreciate the help just trying to, to educate people. Mo- more often than not, I really think people are trying to do the right thing. They either think they're helping the trapper out or they think that the animal's suffering, as an example. That's one big misconception about trapping. I took some pictures and, and showed some videos of myself putting my hand inside my wolf trap so that people can see it's not chopping their legs off and things yeah. like everybody seems to think. But, um, yeah. you know, regardless of, of what the reason is, just trying to help people understand that they're they're doing far more harm than, than what they are helping. Um, I, I'm hoping that we can 
turn this around. It's, it was a huge issue last year. Um, you know, the other one was was theft of the wolves. I think sometimes people get excited. They come around the, the corner. It's obvious the wolf's in a trap. They they jump out. They they blow a big hole in her top, you know, or blow the top of its head off, like what happened to mine last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, they pick, they, they panic. They pick the wolf up, toss it in their truck, and they take off. I had seven wolves stolen from members last year. And and so it uh, you know not only did they ruin the set they took away that person's only uh, reward for all of his efforts they also took away his reimbursement because they didn't have a wolf to check in yeah. and so it's um, it's just it's it's really saddening so please that's just my my uh, exiting plea please hunters help us help you Le- leave our stuff alone let us do our work great great point great point. And, uh, yeah, I, I can't, I can't say enough. If there's, if there's anything we could do from our show's standpoint, um, you just, you just let me know. And, and, uh, we're, we're here for you here at the, the Western Huntsman. So, um, uh, we appreciate it. I know we, we said 10 minutes and we're going on a half an hour here. So this is, <laughs> this, is a gr- this is a great topic, but, uh, I'd like to, let's, let's maybe, uh, meet up again after after trapping season when, once it's over i'd love to kind of get a recap of your season this uh you know late winter early spring whenever whenever you kind of wrap it up and and uh, talk a little bit further on this topic and make a whole episode out of it again i know last time you were on the show it was uh people really liked it people really liked the show it was a great a lot of downloads on that episode so um good i appreciate you uh, good luck out there guiding elk, Mitt. Uh, and and uh, you're you're guiding. Well, never mind. I'm not going to ask you where you're going. I, that, <laughs> that'll be for off the air. <laughs> but um, good luck out there, buddy. And I appreciate you coming on. Thank, thank you, Jim. Uh, we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Take care. So there you have it, guys. Uh, that was Justin, and uh, Justin is is like just one of the hardest working guys I've ever met in my life. Um, and he's got a lot of credibility on this issue. So I hope that helped. I hope that helped. And I hope that that will, will kind of inspire people when, when we're out there and you do see a wolf and, and it's in a trap. If, if you do come across that, I know I guys, I know that it would be super tempting to take that wolf out and either take the wolf or leave it. Uh, you know, but, but that's, that's going to be, that, that would be doing the wrong thing in a time when we really all need to be doing the right thing on this particular issue. I mean, we always need to be doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, that's, but, but I'm not here to, uh, to, to discuss that on, on a, you know, some big level or whatever. But in this case, I, I will, I will hammer this home. Do the right thing if you come across a wolf in a trap. In fact, you know, it doesn't have to be a wolf. Just leave trappers uh, alone. Leave the trap lines alone. Leave the sets alone. All of that. Let's uh, let's all work together because, like I said on the phone with Justin, this the, the Foundation for Wildlife Management and these trappers out doing the hard work, this is the vessel in which we will see positive results and a balanced ecosystem and landscape where we can we can have wolves and we can have elk and they can all thrive. It's all a management system that we, we really have to focus on and be on the same team with. So I, I appreciate you guys, you know, uh, paying attention to this section, this this intro to the to this show, this episode. Um, and uh, gosh, I, I, I hope I hope those of you that are out there that do come across that. Uh, that that maybe would have shot a wolf in a trap prior to listening to this will now not shoot a wolf in a trap and and hopefully we're all on the same page and all on the same team because this is a way we're gonna make it happen. All right, guys, let's transition this. So I got 
I got Marty, Marty, uh, Mariotto. If you guys, if, if, for for the last, I don't know, close to a decade, this show Mountain Men has been on on TV, and it's uh, it's one of the few programs that I watch. I'm I'm always super, and I talk about this with Marty, but I'm always super leery of a lot of these reality TV shows and like their authenticity and and legitimacy and and like really what what's going on? Like, it, it, is this is this real? Is this are they really going through this? Um, Things like that, you know, and I'm, I know a lot of people are like this too. They're like, uh, whatever. <laughs> and so, I've always, uh, I've always thought that. But with this show, Mountain Men, specifically with uh, with Marty up in Alaska and this guy Tom Orr uh, up up in the Yak in Montana, which is uh, just a, a stone's throw away from my neck of the woods, um, there's there's this level of authenticity that was captured on the show, and I I felt like that nobody was pulling my leg, nobody was. Uh, pulling one over, you know, pulling the wool over my eye or, or anything like that with, with Marty. Marty is just a tough son of a gun. He's been up doing this in the Arctic for I don't know how long, 30-some-odd uh, years, trapping um, many times without any kind of uh, access or communication with the outside world uh, in, in sub-zero temperatures, negative 40 degrees and better. Um, and he's, he's just out there working his butt off all winter long trapping and he traps all sorts of stuff and he's very successful and it's, it's just been his lifestyle and it's been his way of life for several decades. And he's got just a heck of amount of, uh, great stories that we can all learn from. Um, and he put it all together in this cool book called in the land of the wilderness or no, I'm sorry, in the land of wilderness, the writings of Marty Mariotto. Uh, it's a great book. I read it, uh, during elk season. Actually, I took it up, uh, on the mountain and read it at, at night and and sometimes you know when you're sitting there midday kind of waiting for things to to turn around or thermals to switch or or you know wanting these elk to to get out of their bedding area uh, i always pack a book and i'll just sit there and read and sometimes you never know sometimes an elk will walk in front of you when you're doing that by the way but uh anyway with with marty he's such a great guy he's he's a father he's a husband he's a trapper he's a firefighter uh he he was a smoke jumper uh he, he he's a television or he was a television personality if you don't know he retired from the show because he wants to uh, have a, a better experience taking his daughter out and being with his family out on the trap line and teaching her that lifestyle and it's it's just such a he's such a good human being he's one of those people that you just like instantly and he's so genuine and he's so uh, authentic and he's such the 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 clicheish Alaskan mountain man that you think about. Uh, I'm proud to know him and I'm proud to call him my friend now, uh, getting him on the show like this. And, and I'm just really excited for you guys to hear this episode. So without further ado, I'll stop yakking about it. And we'll just get him going right now. Uh, welcome Mar- Marty Mariotto from the show Mountain Men and enjoy. guys today on uh my my guest this week is somebody that i have really been looking forward to getting on the show and i'm really excited to talk to him probably one of the most interesting guys marty i get a lot of people on the show and and for some i I am just really excited to have you on the show uh in particular 
So uh, I'd like to welcome you to the Western Huntsman podcast. Guys, this is Marty Mariotto. Uh, you might know him from the show Mountain Men. He's an author. He's a trapper in Alaska, and he's been doing so for decades. He has a lot of experience dealing with temperatures that I can't even fathom. Uh, Marty, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, Jim. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and, and joining me, and uh, I think we're going to have a really good conversation. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, hunting and trapping is my, uh, my favorite thing to talk about, so yeah. <laughs> I think we're... You know a little something about it, right? Well, I'm learning. Uh, <laughs> I, it's, yeah, eventually maybe I'll figure it all out, but probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's the nice thing about hunting and trapping is it, it, I feel like it's just a, it's a constant learning experience for everybody. And, and uh, that, the beauty of it is you, you can, it, with the right attitude, you can never stop learning. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you think you know it all, you're hurting yourself. It's, I, I, yeah, I, like yeah. I said, I'm, I'm still learning and I, I'm sure I'll learn till the day I die on the whole hunting and trapping deal. Yeah. Yeah. You and I both, you and I both for sure. So, so Marty, um, as I had mentioned before, Marty spent seven or eight years on, on the show mountain men, uh, who, you know, Marty, in, in my house, we, we don't watch a lot of TV, but when we do, it's usually something like Mountain Men. And so my girls are big fans, and they have questions for you a little bit later on. Um, Marty is also an author. He just recently uh, released a book, and it's called In the Land of Wilderness, The Writings of Marty Mariotto. And uh, this is kind of a collection, Marty, of, of uh, several different articles and stories and, and things that you've written over the years all kind of combined into one book. Is that correct? Yeah, I've always written for uh, our local magazine on, as the Alaska Trappers. And then I've, I've written, written for Fur Fish and Game magazine as well. And when we decided to actually put out a book, it's, it's not a book on just all trapping. It's, I tried to make it I selected articles I've written over the years to kind of show the, the whole lifestyle. You know, it's not like, mm -hmm. like, Oh, if I'm not a trapper, I'm not going to like this book. It's, it's written for outdoors people. And there's, there are a few articles on trapping, but a lot of it is more the lifestyle. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and just, you know, I am not an active trapper. I am one of those guys that is, uh, I'm very much an outdoorsman that is very intrigued with trapping. And uh, I'm starting to inch closer and closer to becoming, uh, or, or, or what my wife would say, falling in the trap of trapping, uh, because <laughs> she, she knows uh, that my commitment to hunting and fishing and, and being outdoors takes up a lot of time. And so that's, that's been the hesitation so far. But uh, we've got some new challenges, if you will, in the state of Idaho that is, has really got me thinking that it's, it's time to probably get involved with trapping. All that being said to say, uh, as, as a person that is not uh, actively involved in trapping, I really enjoyed the book. And I enjoyed it because it's what you said. It's not just, it's not like a, a trapping 101 kind of book or, or um, you know, uh, you don't get bogged down with a lot of uh, some of the more technical details of trapping. It's, it's more of a storytelling 
And it's, 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 it's something that any outdoorsman, whether they're a hunter, they're a trapper, they're a fisherman, or, or they just like being in the back country, uh, can really enjoy and learn from. And you'd be surprised. I, you probably don't even know about some of the, the, the nuggets that I've gotten out of the book that have helped me while you're talking trapping, apply it to the hunting world. And so I, I think it's a valuable, a valuable book. You're a great writer, Marty. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I, I, it's, it's, really, it's really easy to read and, and enjoyable. And, and uh, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the book later on. Um, and so before, before we get too far, I think uh, for, for anybody that's been you know, living, living on the moon that might not know who Marty Mariotto is, can you give us kind of a, a quick background, a snapshot of who you are and what you've been doing for the last few decades? And, and we'll kind of go from there. Sure. Uh, I, I grew up in northern Wisconsin uh, near Lake Superior, the Duluth Superior area. And, and my, my dad was a real avid hunter and he did some trapping. And I, I took to it pretty quick. And the first time I went on the trap line with my dad, he just had a small walking line for raccoons and fox. And Boy, I, I don't know what it was, but there was something about trapping. I, I thought, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. And so far, it's, it hasn't gotten old yet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I I always dreamed of, you know, I read all the old mountain man books and stuff like that. And I dreamed about being in, in the wilderness. And I ended up you know, reading enough to where Alaska was, I thought, the last true chunk of wilderness. You know, yeah. it was, there's, there were places, you know, old, maps at that time, a lot of them had, they were older than, you know, that time period. But, that, you know, I, I would, I'd look at a map and say it had a big blank spot that says unexplored or undocumented or however they stated it. Oh, I mean, wow. obviously, it, it had been seen before, but I thought, wow, that's wilderness. So anyways, I ended up coming to Alaska when I was I was 23. Me and my brother came up together, and uh, the intent was to go live in the woods. And mm -hmm. we, you know, we, I guess, kind of accomplished that. I realized after after being here that it was a lot harder than just going out in the woods and trapping. Uh, but a long story short, we, we found a trap line and we trapped out there and, you know, the wilderness has never gotten old for me. I, I, I have, I can't wait to get back out to the trap line this year and this will be like 30 some years. And, <laughs> and this will be, this will be kind of a almost. Uh, is this the first year you're going in to trap for for the winter uh, without a camera crew, or was last winter? Last winter was. Last winter was. Yeah. Does yeah. it does it change a lot having having a camera crew with you? Immense. It's it's. Uh, I learned right away that if you wanted to show people how you what you did for a living, the first thing you had to do is stop doing it. <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard to cover. You know, I cover a lot of miles and it, it's really hard to get that on film 
mm-hmm. and still do that. And I, I stuck with it. You know, there was a lot of the drama I didn't agree with, but I, I thought, and I hope that, that people saw, you know, how a, a different lifestyle, a, a really neat way to live. And, yeah, you know, yeah. that was my intent. You know what it did for me is when it, when it came out, the show came out and, um, you know, I'm always, I'm always a little bit suspicious of, of a lot of these kind of reality based TV shows and, and the, the authenticity of some of it and the legitimacy of it. Uh, but mountain men came out and I, at this point in, in my life, when it, when it first came out, my, my youngest daughter was still pretty young. Um, but I spent a lot of time in the woods and I, I, I hunted multiple different types of species. And I, I kind of got the feeling that, you know, I'm a, I'm a real outdoorsman. I'm, I'm this, I'm this big time outdoorsman. I, I'm a, I've got a great set of skills in terms of woodsmanship and, and uh, tracking animals. And all. anyway, the point being, I saw you on the show and it deflated my ego about my level of woodsmanship and outdoorsmanship. Because you take it to a whole new level. And there was this real sense of legitimacy to the show, too, that, uh, that you really brought out in it. Uh, I, I would say more than the others. And so uh, that's from the perspective of somebody down here in the lower 48, kind of watching that from a distance. And, and you're talking about, um, oh, yeah, actually, it's, it's, it's not too cold today. It's only negative 30. To me... I don't, I don't know how you live in those kind of temperatures. Uh, when it's 10 degrees here, I'm pretty frosty. <laughs> so uh, it, it was just this whole eye-opening experience for me that, that opened this window to, to the Alaskan range and the Arctic and, and these, these, this lifestyle that you live up there that I didn't really know existed and still exists. I, I, you know, I, I'm like you. I read all the Mountain Man books and um, – I've always been intrigued with with the frontiers of America, whether it's the American West in the 1800s or or Alaska after that. And 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 this is it has brought me to this point where this lifestyle still exists because you're off grid in frigid cold temperatures, and in the early days didn't even have communication with the outside world for months at a time. And it, it is just such an eye opening thing to to kind of watch unfold on 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 some reality show that I happened to come across totally by accident. <laughs> and so when you, when you first got to Alaska and you and your brother are there, and I, I kind of know the story because I've, re- I've read the book, but you guys, you guys talk about, you know, you don't have a lot of money, uh, but, but you had basically acquired this, this trap line. Can you kind of talk about what that was like the first time you guys set out uh, for, for the first season, for, for your first trapping season in Alaskan. Oh yeah, that was, oh, to feel that, that exciting, excited again. That was, I guess I always knew, I always knew that it was wilderness and, you know, in those days there was no satellite phones or, yeah. I don't know, there's like in reaches now. I mean, there was literally no contact with the outside world and and it didn't hit me until you know we had we had got this trap line from a guy that ended up he's to this day he's still a good friend of ours but uh it didn't hit me exactly what we had actually done until 
that airplane flew away. It mm. dropped us off and it flew away and all of a sudden it hit me. Wow. <laughs> I'm not going to, there's no way to get a message out for months, you know, you know, yeah. until that came back. And what year that was, was that? That was what I dreamed of. That was uh, the fall of 1987. Okay. So 1987, the airplane drops you off in the back country and, and, and we're not talking, you're going to plan on being there for 10 days. How long are you going for? Well, we told the guy that to come and get us sometime between Christmas and the first of the year. So that was, yeah, we, we didn't know when, but he was, that was the plan. So it was about, you know, roughly four months. Cause it was first part of October, I think when he dropped us off. Sure. Sure. And, and so you guys set out and you, obviously you had done some trapping back home before you'd moved to, to Alaska. What, what, what was the learning curve like getting into Alaska, into the interior like that and, and kind of cutting your teeth for the, for the first season in Alaska? Oh, it was steep. It was, you know, it's a whole different, like you uh, alluded to earlier, dealing with the cold and, and trapping in that cold. It was a whole different way. And I, I had trapped fox and there were fox out there, but I had never trapped marten or lynx or wolverine or wolves. So it was a steep learning curve, but I mean, it was a labor of love for sure. Yeah, yeah I'll bet. I'll bet. So you guys, you guys were out there for a few months and you ever go hunting with somebody that always chintzes out on like the most important thing, like boots? I did a couple times. And you know what happened? They slipped and fell down the mountain the entire month of September. That's what happens when you buy $100 boots and, and try to make them last. They don't last. Guys, Hoffman Boots, can't say enough good things about this company. It's a great family-owned business right here in North Idaho. They make badass boots. These things are insanely, insanely comfortable. They just glue your feet to the mountain in the steepest of conditions. They will keep you safer because of that. So while my buddies are falling on their butt the entire time, I'm walking down like I'm in the park. Guys, I have a great promo code that'll save you 15% if you go to HoffmanBoots.com. It is all caps lock, Huntsman 15 in the checkout when you are ready for a new pair of great boots that you won't have to replace for a very long time. Guys, Scree. Scree is Extreme Mountain Gear. They were one of the first sponsors of this podcast. And this high-performance hunting attire and gear is its scientifically tested camo patterns, backed by a great company, and it's got a lifetime warranty, VIP sizing, and, and, and exchange program. Basically, if you, if you order it and it's the wrong size, they pay for it to get shipped back, and they're going to send it back. I heard of some dude that accidentally ripped uh, a pair of his hard scrabble pants. And he was upset about it, and he let Scree know, and they replaced him for him. Guys, this is a great company. That's the kind of company that I am proud to have supporting this show and being partnered with them. Uh, It's just, again, a great company story and and, and a company that you guys would be proud to own the gear for. It'll get you through any season, anywhere in North America. Check it out at ScreeGear.com and use the promo code the Western Huntsman for 15% off and free shipping at checkout and last but by far not least phelps game calls guys phelps game calls uh, I, I you guys if you've listened to any of these episodes uh, as i as i kind of 
dissected my last September. I had so many bull elk encounters using these calls, and I used everything from the pink Maverick to the Ma- or the pink amp to the Maverick. I used the Renegade bugle tube. I used a couple of their external read calls. I uh, just had a ball calling in elk left and right, hand over fist, and because these calls work. Obviously, they work well. It's not just about that, though. Guys, Jason Phelps started this company from scratch and built it into what it is now. The company, the game call company that we all know well. And I, I just, I think that that is so important. These the, these American companies that are born out of an idea and they grow into this this thing that, that we can all get behind and love and support and the, and the personalities and the people behind it, that's Phelps Game Calls. Salt of the earth company, salt of the earth people that run it. And I can't say enough good things about Phelps Game Calls. Don't forget, it's not just about elk with Phelps. You get you a, a, a black ta- a blacktail in distress call and watch those deer come into you while they're rutting because it fires up those, those does. And what do you think is right behind those does during the rut? November's coming. Make sure you're getting your deer calls as well. So check it out at phelpsgamecalls.com and use the promo code HUNTSMAN10 for 10% off at sh- uh, checkup. I keep wanting to say shipping. (laughs) That's how I roll. All right, guys. With that said, thank you to the sponsors of this show. Let's get back to the discussion. Hope you guys are enjoying the show. We'll talk to you later. So 1987, has it been like pretty much every year since then you've been been on the trap line during the winter months? Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Let's talk. That's what I do. (laughs) <laughs> and let's talk about the lifestyle of that. Let's talk about, uh, I want to talk about like, what, what does it look like? What does this lifestyle look like? You go out and you trap. I want to talk about the animals you trap, uh, and, and f- like financially, how does it work? Uh, how does it work logistically? Uh, all these things that are just so foreign to uh, a lot. Of, and I keep, I keep wanting to say, you know, all of us down here in the lower 48, but I'm sure there's, there's folks in Alaska that have these same questions. Um, what, what does that, what does this lifestyle look like and, and why is it such a draw for you? Well, for me, it's, it's just the woods, the wilderness. It's the only place I've ever felt like I belonged. I mean, even back then when I, they dropped me off in the middle of nowhere, I just had this feeling that this is it. This is home. This is what I've been looking for. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've always felt that way. And, and my plan originally was to live in the woods full time, you know, forever, kind of, but kind of year round. Yeah. You learn right away that, y- you know, you, you can't support yourself by just trapping and living in the woods. You, you know, I, I learned that if I wanted to do this, and not being financial ruin and scratch by, I, I was going to have to work summers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that was kind of an eye opener. Like I'm not going to be able to do this the way I had hoped. And then I, I ended up fighting fire, which, which worked good for me because it was a summer job. And then in the falls, of course, there's no more forest fires and, then I was able to spend my winters in the bush. So financially, I had to have some kind of income so that I could afford to spend the winters out there. Mm-hmm. And so you. And had- then, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was. And then you mentioned, you know, uh, access and stuff, and that's 
that's how I got into flying. It wasn't any, you know, that I thought I would love to be a pilot and fly. It was akin to liking to fish and living on an island. And it just all of a sudden it dawns on me, hey, I might need a boat. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's of Alaska, the roads, there's relatively very few roads in Alaska. And I realized that if I wanted to go to the trap line when I wanted to go, I was probably going to have to get into flying. Hmm. So that's how I ended up being a pilot is not through a love of, I want to be a pilot, but I want to be on the trap line and be in the woods. So I got into flying. Did you, did you also fly for, uh, while you were a firefighter? Cause you were a smoke jumper and all that, weren't you? Yes. I was a smoke jumper for 20, 21 years, I think. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, you know, smoke jumping is, it's kind of a young man's game. <laughs> I was starting to get to be one, one day I came to work and they one of the boys says, geez, Marty, you're the oldest smoke jumper in this base. And then I started thinking, well, well, maybe I should look into doing something else. Anyways, I ended, I've always, I had always been flying by then. So I, you know, time was right and I got lucky. And anyways, I ended up transitioning from jumping fires to flying aircraft for fires. And there's uh, nothing like a, a young whippersnapper sometimes to just kind of put it into uh, a, a, a reality that you don't maybe not want to accept. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> he's just speaking plainly, but, but sometimes uh, <laughs> that comes across. It's like, man, I didn't really need you to remind me of that, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm really curious too. W one thing that really strikes me about about you between reading the book and you know watching the show and these things you've got you've got this amazing level of persistence and in the book you talk about the time on the you're up on the squirrel river and dominique gets sick and you have to get her out there and i don't want to give too many details away in the story or from the book um but you have to you have to figure out how to how to get her taken care of and then you get sick and the crazy thing about it is is you're going folks you're going to have to read the book to understand the details because it's it's actually a it's an edge of the seat story i i was super obviously i knew you survived because i was reading the book that you wrote but I was on the edge of my seat. I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know how this is going to work out. He's got nothing to, he's got nowhere else to go here. And so it's an amazing story. But the, the thing that really stands out to me is you were right back at it the next season. It, it, it wasn't a road bump. It was, I mean, it was, it was nothing. It was just, you, you just, it wasn't even a question, I guess, is, is what I'm trying to get at. You were right back at it the next season. And that, that speaks to your commitment to the lifestyle, but was, I, I'm just, I've been curious about this since I read that part in the book was in the book, it doesn't come across as a question, but in your mind, was it a question to go back out into the sticks, uh, after, after going through what uh, you and Dominique went through? No, that was ne that never entered my mind. What, what entered my mind was I had to have some way to, if something went wrong like that again, and you know, I'd, for a while there, I mean, I, I knew I wasn't going to make it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But 
you know, I mean, it worked out a lot of it was luck, but, uh, I, that's, that was the final push that got me into flying. It's one thing for me to risk myself, but with Dominique, you know, to bring her out there and, you know, expect her to take on these same risks I did. I, I realized I had to get into flying cause I had to be able to get out if I if something went wrong, I had to have that extra level of safety margin, you know, and, and yeah. a lot of people, to some extent, it's true, you know, flying, you know, might not, I mean, that isn't all safe either, but, <laughs> but I mean, you know, if you can get out, uh, you know, that's, but it was never a question it's never a question of if I was going to go back in the woods. It, the question was, I have to figure out a way to get out if I have to, you know, in one way or another. And it turned out to be flying for a while. And then other forms of communication, you know, hmm. showed up later on. Yeah, you guys, finally, the technology of satellite phones and all that kind of came true. Because, you know, one thing that we didn't really cover for the audience is, you know, how far out are you? Uh, for, for example, during that winter, I want to say it was 95, 96. Uh, during that winter on the, on the Squirrel River, how far away from civilization are you? The nearest village is about 60 air miles. And it's, you know, it's far enough away and the country's yeah. rugged enough. You're not going to get on your snow machine and drive there. It's, it would, it's an ordeal. I have never done it, um, mm -hmm. but, but it, it, it could be done. But, you know, I mean, it's remote in the extreme. You're not, you're basically, you're not getting out of there under your own power. That's for sure. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I just kind of wanted that in, put into perspective a little bit. And so you're going along living this life of uh, you, you're, you're doing the smoke jumping thing and the firefighting thing during the summer months. And then you transition to, to uh, full-time remote trapper uh, during, during the winter months. Um, and, and then suddenly this, uh, this thing called mountain men happens. How did the, how did that show? How did that all come about? <laughs> well, I was, I was very reluctant to do it. You know, I, the way it started is, uh, the president of the Alaska Trappers Association here, I've always been involved with them and Mm -hmm. he called and said, uh, we got, we were contacted by a writer that wants to do a story on trapping in the wilderness. And he said, you know, you fit the bill. Can you take them out to your trap line? And I, of course, first said, no, no way. <laughs> anyway, he, he said, oh, it's going to be pro trapping. You know, it's, it's trapping needs, needs a little support and, you know, let people know that it's, it's a, a really cool thing and it's, you know, trappers aren't running through the woods as these evil people trying to kill everything that moves. Yeah. Anyways, he, he shamed me into it and I, I brought him out to the trap line and we, he, he ended up, his name's Bill Heavey and he writes for Field and Stream magazine. I didn't know any of this. Sure. And he came out. We we had a good time. We we had some experiences, and he went back, wrote an article, and the phone started ringing. I think it was right when these 
reality type shows started. It was, anyways, yeah. the phone started ringing, and I was like, no, 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 no. And then one day somebody knocked on the door. Anyways, they, you know, I said, I'm not interested in a cheesy reality show. And they said, oh, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We just want to show this really neat thing. And, of course, you know, because I like to write and, you know, I thought that would be a good way to show people something neat. So that's how it started. Gotcha. So they, they kind of came at you and, and how did, like, how did that change the dynamics when, when you go from all of a sudden you're this, this storyteller, uh, to on a, on a reality show. And, and, and it's, it's a show that, that you want, you want a certain story told. Um, I guess that's where I'm going with the question. You want a certain story told you, you want, you want to show the lifestyle that you live in an authentic way. Um, and do you feel like on the show, your lifestyle was portrayed accurately and in an authentic way? Uh, well, for my part, that's what I strive to do. And sometimes it was frustrating because they, you know, they want, you know, like the whole drama thing. And, but for my part and the people I worked with, they were good people. And, uh, yeah, I, I think for the most part, it showed what, how things are done out there and what I do out there. It's, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's hard. I think it's hard anyway. Like if the show was just about Marty, right. And, and the whole, um, I'm struggling to remember if it was like a half hour show or a full hour show, but either way they'd bounce around to a lot of different personalities. Um, you had you and, and Tom Orr and, uh, that Eustace guy in North Carolina or something. But so it was hard to, hard to like, I, I feel like it, it would have been a cool show if it was like just about you, <laughs> does that make sense? Not, and, and I'm not, I'm not taken away from, from the other, the other personalities because I, I actually, I enjoyed the whole show. Uh, but there was, there was a certain, there was like this level of authentic, um, portrayal in your segments that I feel like may have lacked a little bit in some of the other ones, not all of them, but, but some of the other ones. And, and, and that really, that really stood out to me. And, and so I, I feel like it's probably really, obviously when, when you're doing four minute segments or seven minute segments or, or whatever, kind of bouncing around to different, different people, it's hard to tell the full story for sure. Uh, is there, is there anything you would want people to know about you or your lifestyle that, that didn't get portrayed on the show? I think, uh, the show showed what went on for my part. You know, I, I, if, you know, if they said, Hey, it would be really cool if you drive into that hole in the ice. And, and I'm like, well, you can drive in the hole in the ice, but I'm not gonna, <laughs> you know, uh, I, well, I didn't do things to sensationalize anything. I just said, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, and this all works and yeah, things can happen and things do happen. Um, but I, I think, one thing I tried to show that I don't know if the show did or not was to sh how unique it is that time doesn't matter out there. You know, it doesn't matter to me whether it takes me 10 hours to do something or 10 minutes, as long as if it's something that needs to be done, it gets done. It's, you know, you, you step away from that rat race and that clock because the yeah. clock doesn't matter. And 
you know, to that kind of freedom, I don't know if it showed that kind of, it's always a time crunch and they, you know, they tried to, they tried to show the part of the drama was he has to get this done kind of a thing mm-hmm. where in reality, yeah, I have to get it done, but I can take my time. I don't have to look and go. I have so much time to get this done. Yeah. I, I think, do. I think you're right. It, it did. It, they did have a tendency to want to drama uh, dramatize some things that I think that uh, I think a lot of that added to the entertainment value, the, the entertainment aspect of it. But I do remember, and it wasn't just with you, it was with all of them, you know, something like some brush over a trail would be this big dramatic thing they'd build up and then go to a commercial break and, and uh, you come back and you'd had it all fixed. You know, things like that. Um, and so I, I get that. And I, I think that to, to people like me and, and, and folks that listen to this show, I, I think we pick up on that stuff. You might, you might get, you know, folks that are living in, in these, some of these big metro areas that uh, spent a lot of their life in the corporate world uh, may not have picked up on that as much, but um, I think it portrayed it pretty well. And like I said, in, t- in terms of, you know, authenticating that kind of lifestyle, I just, I, I felt there was, there was this level of authentication with you. And, and, and it was with like Tom or over uh, out in Montana, which he's not very far from me, especially by the way, a crow flies. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was just entertaining. My girls love it. My girls really love it. And they, they, they wanted you to take uh, your daughter out on the trap line and film that part. <laughs> well, that's, that's it ended up being, you know, I, I, I left the show because I wanted to get back to full-time trapping. And with Noah here, I, you know, I want, I, I want her to, learn that and you know have that experience with us together and not oh there's a camera i you know that's yeah that's why i left i i wanted to get back to you know what i my passion passion yeah your passion do yeah when when you were when you were on the show um these are questions you know you know viewers that have never been on that kind of that side of it has pops into my mind but were, were the camera folks, were they there the whole season or would they just kind of pop in intermittently and, and film for a couple of days and then cut out? No, they would come out because, I mean, it's remote and they had to get out there and they had to stay in the cabin with me and eat my cooking and <laughs> freeze when I froze and got wet when I got wet. So they, they were a pretty hearty bunch. I And, of course, starting out, it was, they were a little bit out of their comfort level. Most of them were filmed outdoor shows or hunting shows. So they weren't, they weren't new to being in the woods, but that kind of remoteness and, and dream. Yeah. 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 Not, you're not leaving at the end of the day. It was no, they didn't go, it's a wrap. Let's head to the hotel for cold beers. It was none of that. It was (laughs) all right. Somebody hauling some firewood and somebody go get some water and Good. We'll cook so, up some. <laughs> so you put them to work, huh? Oh yeah, they well they had to. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's part of it. You know, if, if, and if if you want water, you go to the river and get water. You don't turn on a faucet and you don't turn up a thermostat. <laughs> put wood in the stove. So yeah, they were a good bunch. They're. It was trying sometimes, but for the most part, we we managed to have a pretty good time. And hopefully, talking to you, it makes me feel good that that part of what I wanted to show was coming through. Yeah, 
Yeah, it did for sure. I, it's just, uh, that's, that's great. I, 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 the, the one question I have is when the crew's there filming, did you ever have to take the 22 out and take care of a couple of shrews or give them the full experience that way? Oh yeah. Yeah. They saw it all. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of stuff that got filmed that didn't make it on the show that I thought would be good. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> um, logistically speaking, when, when you're spending that long, whether you have a camera crew or don't, can you talk about like, what kinds of things do you eat through, throughout that whole time? And, and how do you sustain yourself that long? Just from a, just a pure logistical standpoint. Well, because everything has to be flown out and I have a super cub, so it's a little plane. I fly out. And of course I can't bring out fresh anything. It's canned goods or dried goods. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, you know, there's no way we could afford to fly meat out there. So we just, and to this day, I still work it this way. I get out there. Hopefully I can find enough grouse or even rabbits to sustain me until moose season opens. Cause I'm a meat eater. I, I'm, I mean, I eat meat every meal. Mm-hmm. That's what I had for breakfast this morning. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, it's I try to shoot a moose, and once the moose is down, then life, uh, you know, it's a big relief to okay, the winter's meets in, and uh, yeah, it's it's basic. I uh, my standard meal is uh, moose moose meat, uh, like dried potatoes. I make gravy and maybe a can can of beans or corn or something. That's that's as fancy as it gets. Did you make those you you make those camera guys get their own moose or did you have to split it? No. <laughs> no. No, I got one moose one moose can feed quite a few people. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So especially your uh those moose up there in Alaska. Man. I uh Oh yeah. They yeah, they're the largest antlered animal on earth, I, I've been told. They're you got yeah. 500 pounds when a big bull goes down. Ah, that's incredible. I, I got a buddy up there, and he's been on the show, Greg Landis. He, he promises to, to let me come up and go moose hunting with him. And so that, that's, uh, that's on the docket. But the, the problem that we run into is uh, his moose season is always in September, which is my elk season. And, and it's really hard to get me out of that archery elk season. So uh, we'll, we'll see how it plays out, though. Yeah, it's it, – you know, you don't moose don't do the bugling and stuff like elk that, but uh, you know they you get a big bull smashing trees and you're grunting them in and it's it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I I I, uh, I imagine so. I a couple years back, I'm I'm walking down this mountain and it's really brushy, really thick and brushy, and I kind of had walked into this wall of pine and moved a branch out of the way to keep walking through, and I'm staring not 12 inches from my nose was a bull moose nose. The oh, side, wow. The magnitude. He was just standing there, and it's, and it's like he's just telling me, you know, this is as far as you're going to go. You're, you're <laughs> turning around right here. And I agreed with him, and I didn't argue. I turned around. I can't imagine that happening on some of those Alaskan moose. J- just the, the size difference right there alone, I think it w- would have been shocking to the system because I, I run into moose, uh, uh, you know, in, in Idaho all the time. But I, I kind of want to circle back to uh, talking about the show for a minute in terms of 
what perhaps repercussions came out of it in terms of we have this world outside of our world of outdoorsmen, right? We're hunters, we're trappers, we're fishermen. We, we, uh, a lot of us, and you know, obviously like you more than more so than others and, and me more so than others and less than guys like you, but our lifestyle is, uh, we make, we make a pretty big effort to live off the land and that's, that's how we live. And we depend on the game meat. We depend on things like trapping and the furs and and this this style and this this choice that we make for our life is is of great value to us. This is not a, um, a passive hobby. Uh, th- this is who we are, and it's what defines us. And then you have the other side of the spectrum, where you have these folks that um, they're against hunting, and and if they're against hunting, they're going to be against trapping. Sometimes they're okay with hunting. Uh, I have this. Uh, I, I have a family friend that uh, she's not super fond of, of, of hunting, but she's not against it, but she despises trapping. That's what, that's what her words were to me. And when I, I had posted something on Facebook about our trappers association here in Idaho, what kind of blowback did you get from, uh, some, some folks out there in terms of trapping and, and your chosen lifestyle? What, was there any, or, or, or what, can you kind of talk about that for a minute? Sure. I, I was actually, worried about that you know when i started doing that show but nothing i never got one negative thing really at all yeah i i was pleasantly surprised um everything i heard from people i met on the street or like if i travel in the airport or you know letters i never got anything negative it was always positive like the show or that that's real interesting that what you do and so i i i know there's a lot out there but i didn't experience any of it so i i was pleasantly surprised that pleasantly surprises me too it actually it warms my heart (laughs) i thought (laughs) i thought it would have been pretty massive blowback um and so that uh yeah, that's that's great to hear. Actually, uh, I think it helps, Marty, that you're such a likable guy. You're just one of those guys that it's you know when you watch you on your show or or you and I talking on the phone or folks reading your book, you're just one of those personalities that is so likable. Uh, I'll bet you that 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 helped kind of tie into this because uh, <laughs> you know it, it's just it's it's amazing some of the stuff that I I get thrown my way just doing a, a hunting podcast and uh, you know from that from that aspect from anti-hunting organizations and uh, let's just say I've gotten their attention <laughs> so ah. uh, that's uh, that's incredible so and and that kind of I don't know that doesn't lead me to to the next question or anything but I want to I want to get your take on wolves and I want I want to get your take in this context Alaska, seems to have found a way uh, to to balance the wildlife systems and the ecosystems in terms of, and and I could be off base with this. So if I am, feel free to correct me because I'm certainly not an an expert on this in terms of Alaska. They, They seem to have found a way to balance wolves with other wildlife. That is not the case here in Idaho. Uh, and the reason why that is not the case here in Idaho is because wolves were were off of the landscape for so long 
that when they were reintroduced, there was there was multiple pro wolf organizations that kind of legislated the management side of it to death uh, through the like a judicial process. They sued everybody that tried to get wolves delisted, and, and and create a game management plan where hunting and trapping were a big part of that to keep the numbers in check. So this went on for ten years. Finally, they were able to delist the wolves, and we find ourselves in this situation where, because of the uh, the listing of wolves and and the, our our nobody was able to hunt, nobody was able to trap them. Wolves can breed at a very proficient rate over a ten year period. Where we find ourselves inundated by a huge population of wolves, and nobody knows how to trap them. Nobody knows how to hunt them. We have no experience. In fact, uh, one of the organizations that I'm, I'm quite fond of down here um, had to bring trappers from Alaska to train trappers in Idaho how to trap these wolves. And, and so it, it's just been this huge challenge. So it's only been about 10 years, eight or nine, 10 years, I, I'm going to totally misquote that, that we've, we've been able to trap and hunt wolves. I've actively hunted for wolves, and I'm a dismal fa- failure at it thus far. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I kind of want to get your take on uh, both the balance of having wolves on the landscape and also um, how do you trap them? Let's, let's talk about how do, you, how do you get these wolves uh, lured into a trap? Because uh, I know you, you've, you've done it, and you've done it very effectively. Yeah, I, I mean – for my part, yeah, and I'm no uh, expert on wolves by any means or uh, dynamics or, you know, how to manage them. But, I mean, the bottom line is you want to manage wildlife. And if if you manage elk and deer and you don't manage the wolves, you're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. And the idea in wildlife management is to have a sustainable population higher than normal and try to stop that huge fluctuation where the wolves eat everything and then the wolves all die and then then the deer and elk come back and then the wolves come back and they eat all the deer and elk yeah. and then all the wolves you know if you can manage you know i i love wolves i think they're super cool oh i do too I track, yeah i do too yeah the the best what I do for wolves to trap wolves is I try to find where they have killed a moose or a caribou and then set on that kill. And of course, wolves are insanely crafty. You know, I don't know. Smart yeah. might not be the word, but now, they, crafty they is actually an excellent way to put it. <laughs> yeah. They have a, a sense that we don't have and, and, that's the big challenge is to try and figure out where that wolf's going to go and catch him. And yeah, wolves are the ultimate game animal for trappers because they're the hardest to catch, mm-hmm. but you know, they're kind of, you know, they're canine. They're like your dog and they have this, a lot of the same traits. So, you, you know, you can use that to try and catch them. You know, if a wolf is like any other animal, they're going to take the path of least resistance. If they're coming to a kill, odds are where one wolf went, the next wolf is going to be there. So, so you know, walk that same trail so you can set in that trail. 
Okay. So, and, and what kind of traps are you using personally for wolf? Well, I, I think the best wolf trap out there right now, just my personal experience, and I haven't tried them all, is that they, they call it the Alaskan 9. It used to be called the Manning 9. Mm-hmm. But that was built by a trapper, originally designed by a trapper, specifically for wolves. And it's a great wolf trap. The, I really like the old new houses. What was trap collecting being so popular if you tell somebody you're using a 114 new house to trap wolves, they, they're like, you got to be kidding me. That's, you need to be collecting that trap. I know. I know. You can't check that out in the woods. I, uh, I saw one of those at an antique store, um, and they were asking a pretty penny for it. I can't remember exactly. I was, I was quite surprised with what they were asking for it because I was going to buy it. And I'm like, no, yeah, I, I, I can't I, afford I, that. I, 14s they're i think they're great wolf traps and yeah i i a lot of guys say hey i'll buy your 114s from you and I, no no <laughs> i still use it. do you descent <laughs> your traps for wolves uh and and if you do how do you do that yeah and i think that's the biggest thing with wolves is they also they, it seems like they know something but i think a lot of it is just you don't get outsmarted you get outsmelled Mm-hmm. So the, a, a wolf can smell, you know, their level of, of being able to smell is so far above humans. It's not even funny. Uh, yeah. Just like a dog and only wolves are even more cute. So yeah, I boil all my traps in uh, logwood crystals. Uh, you can use like alder bark, uh, you know, just to get, I, I want to get so they, they're not going to rust, kind of a rust proofing. And then I always handle them with clean, dry gloves. And I I usually put, if I haul wolf traps with me, I put them in a, a box that's lined with spruce boughs. So, you know, that, that scent yeah. of spruce traps. Are yeah. You, are, are you baiting them? I seldom make a baited wolf set. I will take... Uh, Oh, like if I have a caribou hide or something and I can't find a kill, then I will throw a caribou hide or a moose head or something out somewhere and try and get them coming into it. But I seldom make, yeah, I seldom make like stop and make a set with a little bit of bait for a wolf. That It doesn't work that well for me. Maybe it works good for other guys, but what I like is a big bait. A wolf kill is great, and then once the wolves come in, then I'll set all their trails going in into it. Okay, so that leads me to another question. I, I and I I don't know if you do this or not, but have you ever considered doing trapping seminars? Uh, you know, maybe maybe spending some time in the lower forty eight, setting up these seminars and and. Uh, teaching new guys that, that want to get into trapping How, and whether it's wolves or whether it's Martin or, you know, what, whatever the case is. Have you, have you ever done that or considered that? I, I did help with, because every year our trapping Alaska Trappers Association puts on a, a trapping school uh-huh. and I've helped with that in the past. And uh, yeah, I, I, I like showing people, you know, how to trap and cause it's, I mean, to see somebody, for me, to see somebody 
set a trap and catch their first critter is, I mean, they're excited. It's, it's, yeah. it's cool. Yeah. Uh, and, I, I'd yeah, be beside I, myself excited. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. You know, hunting for me, it's like even a level above hunting, hunting, you, you get your animal and you know, you stock it and, we both know how exciting hunting is for me. Trapping uh -huh. is even more exciting because you have to know even more about that animal. Yeah. Yeah. You got I, to, I agree. You got to get that animal to put his foot in a very small area. Gosh. <laughs> and that's to be crazy. able to figure that out and make it happen is for me, that's, yeah, that's yeah. really satisfying. It's amazing. It's amazing. I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. And so that's, uh, that's why I ask if, if, if you ever had a hinkering to come to North Idaho, I'll bet you I can get a pretty good class size, uh, that, that would be willing, uh, and, and would love to spend a day learning from Marty, uh, how to, how to get into trapping. And that, that, that kind of leads me to this question. Let's say we have a guy like myself who is, uh, intrigued, and, and uh, very interested in getting into trapping. And, and maybe we don't know enough about it that it, it makes it seem like there's this huge entry point into it. Can you talk about, uh, for, for, for somebody in that situation and, and that kind of mindset where we feel like it's this big hurdle to get through uh, to become successful at trapping, what advice would you give somebody like that? I would, I would definitely get a hold. Most states have a trapper's organization. Uh -huh. I would get a hold of them. There are, there's a lot of good trapping books out there. Uh, and I think it would be easy to just do a search on the internet and, and find them. But uh, the number one thing I would say is get a hold of your local trappers organization and they can point you the way. And odds are you might be able to find a, a trapper that's willing to bring you along and show you the ropes. That's yeah, that's what I would suggest. The best thing to do is get a hold of your local trappers organization. Yeah, yeah, and you guys have a great one up in Alaska, the uh, the Alaska uh, Trappers Association. We have we have a great one here in Idaho, I ITA Idaho Trappers Association. And I know you know the president of ITA, Rusty. He's uh, really involved with that the educational side and getting new trappers kind of lined out and ready to go. And I know I know Montana's got a good one too. So. No, that's, that's great. And it's pretty much the same thing that, that uh, as a hunter, I tell people that are trying to break into the, the, the hunting world uh, along the same lines as, as you is find a mentor. Uh, you need a mentor. You, you really do. It, 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 will, it will take years off of the learning curve. Um, oh, most definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, Marty, I have – my daughters have a question because they're fans of the show. And, uh, okay. And so I've, what I'll do, I'll do it, uh, by age. I've got Paisley who is nine years old. We'll have her come up first, but you know what I need to do? I need to fix my speaker so we can actually hear your answer because I've got you on the headphones here. Okay. My challenge is always finding the right wire. <laughs> <laughs> you ready to start your own podcast up there in Alaska? Oh, I'm, I think I'll just stick to trapping and hunting and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tech, I'm, e email stuff is about as far as I'm going with technology, I think. <laughs> well, I, I noticed, I noticed as we were, we were kind of get, getting ready and, and kind of logistically planning this, uh, this podcast, 
I noticed you have, uh, you're very specific. You, you check your emails very early in the morning and that's the only response I'd get from you. <laughs> yeah, I usually head into the woods as soon as I can after I get up. So and sometimes <laughs> I wake up in the woods. So I'm uh, hit or great. miss as far as I'm home. Okay, I am going to uh, switch this audio over for just a minute. Okay, can you still hear me okay? Yep, loud and clear. Can I get you to uh, turn your video on for just a minute? Just hey, no. <laughs> I got to turn the video back on. <laughs> there right. it is. I see. Okay, I'm going to bring Paisley over first, and she'll she'll ask her question. All right, Paisley, come on over to the microphone. Hi. About how many animals have you trapped? Oh, I don't know. Quite a few. I never I never figured as animals. That isn't that isn't a sign of success for a trapper. I think it's just going out there and doing it. Uh, numbers really don't matter. Sometimes you get lucky and you get a few. Sometimes you don't. So for me, it's it's not about numbers. That isn't a level of success for me. That's if you're a trapper, you're a trapper. And if you you know it all depends on how many traps are set, how much line you cover. So numbers numbers don't matter. <laughs> I love that answer. That's a great answer. All right. Thanks, Space. All right, Shiloh, you ready to ask Marty? All right. This is Shiloh, and Shiloh is 11. Hi, Shiloh. Hi. Have you lived anywhere but Alaska? Well, I haven't. I, I grew up in Wisconsin, like I said earlier, and that's where I started trapping and hunting in northern Wisconsin. And then when I moved to Alaska, I fell in love, and I've never left. <laughs> So the, I, I think the question we all have, too, is, is do you ever go anywhere without the bandana on your head? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, you know, I originally started wearing a bandana because I, I used to like riding motorcycles a lot. And my hat kept blowing off. <laughs> so I've used the bandana. And I, yeah, I don't know. One of these days, I'll probably wake up in the morning, forget to put it on, and I'll Maybe I'll never put it on again. I don't know. It's certainly not a fashion statement. <laughs> I don't know. I'm intrigued. I might get me one. I I like it. <laughs> Keeps the sweat out of the eyes. Thanks, girls. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Well, everybody playing fire usually wears a bandana to keep the sweat out of their eyes. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. All right. I got to switch this audio back over here. Bye, girls. Thank you. I think that was their uh, their debut on a on a podcast. <laughs> I appreciate that. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. You know, we gotta. It's good that you know, I mean, that's the the future for hunting and trapping is the the next generation coming up. And yeah. Yep. The the reason people don't like something most of the time is because they don't understand it. So you know, right. education into it is. I mean, if you're alive and walking around. On this earth, things are dying. Mm -hmm. And that's not a bad thing. That's the way it was meant to be. Whether you kill it or someone kills it for you, whatever. But people have to realize that. Yeah. And I, I couldn't to, agree more. To, to, that generation needs to understand. I mean, what are you going to do if, if things go bad and there's no grocery store? And you got to be able to go out and get some food. Yeah. I, I agree completely. 
All right. Perfect. Well, Marty, this has been a great, uh, great conversation. A lot of fun to talk with you. Um, I'd like to kind of wrap this up by talking about the book and, and uh, letting people know where they could find it. And uh, I, I want people to know that are listening to this uh, fr- from my perspective, uh, you know, we, we, as, as outdoorsmen and hunters and trappers, we don't have like just an endless supply of good reading material. Um, there's a lot of it, but it's not like other genres. And, and so I, for me, I, I try to get my hands on all of it and, and I try to get it and, and dive into as much of that as I can. And it's this book in particular had a unique way of being both entertaining and educational and even in the during the the parts of of you writing this book where you your intent was more about maybe telling a story ended up being extremely educational for me uh, for a guy who's very novice in the trapping trapping world it, tell us a little bit why'd you want to write the book and and uh, why you think people should read it well um like I said I've always loved to write I have thousands of pages of journals and I've always thought in the back of my mind that someday I would write a a book. And as I was writing articles, I started thinking, well, maybe we could put a lot of these articles in book form and, you know, have something somebody can read that's, you know, the intent wasn't to be this is a trapping book or this is a hunting book. It's a outdoor book. Mm-hmm. And I hope that's, that that was my intent, and I I hope that's what people think. Oh, absolutely! Um, yeah, I always love to write. So, yeah, it's I don't know. There's oh, it's you you hit it you hit it right on the nub there. Um, the the things that you talk about in the book uh, could can be related to any outdoorsman. Uh, one example is I one of my favorite chapters was was the discussion about the shrews dealing with the shrews. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's entertaining, but it's, it's like, okay, you're out there trapping, dealing with that. I deal with that, uh, when I'm out, when I'm out hunting and I've had those dang things ride home in my, uh, my, my camping trailer and, uh, ride home in my truck. Um, uh, things like that, that you just, you kind of end up dealing with, uh, the, these little rodents and, and the way you deal with them is, is pretty fantastic. Um, and so it's, it's just one of those things that speaks to, to every outdoorsman and, and, uh, from, and especially from you, I mean, geez, man, you're out there, you're building cabins by hand. You're, you're trapping everything from uh, Martin to wolves, to lynx, to, you know, whatnot. And you're, you're out there in, in what we all, there's, there's this big thing going on in the hunting community where, where we talk a lot about, you know, backcountry hunting and and being out you know off grid and and in the back country away from everything and and uh, you're right we all run around with these Garmin minis and and the Zolio satellite communicator device and all the stuff that where you've been doing this for decades before all of that was even even possible uh, before it was invented and you and and the way that you describe it in your book it really sheds light on. When, when we think we're getting to a certain level of being an outdoorsman and, and being comfortable in the backcountry, then we can read your book and realize that there's a lot more to this. There's a lot further we can go. There's a, there's a higher level that we could take this to. And it's super inspiring. And, and so I would encourage anybody to read this book. I, I, I love it. And, and, and oh, and that's, we need to cover that. Where can, you, where can people get the book, Marty? 
All you have to do is go to the Alaska Trappers website. You can just do a search for uh, Alaska Trappers Association, and it's right on the front page. Okay. The Alaska Trappers Association has been, in the last few years, has been becoming a, a, a good outlet for just the kind of books you were discussing, you know, those outdoor-type books. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, I noticed uh, they, had, they had a few of them, yep. Yeah, and th so that's what we decided to do. The, the president of Alaska Trappers Association, Randy Zarkey, was very instrumental in, in helping this book from tattered uh, article pages to a book form. And, mm -hmm. and, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's the best place to get the book. To, I, I, I think it's on Amazon, too. Um, but I'll look. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll look, and and what I'll do um, is I'll link I'll link the Alaska Trappers Association, and if it's on Amazon, I'll uh, I'll link that as well. I'm just checking right now. Yeah, if I mean you know if you go to the Alaska Trappers Association, it's right on the first page. You don't have to do any searching. So perfect. Yeah, I'll just I'll throw that in the show notes, so everybody could find it pretty easy. And uh, yeah. It's, Fine. Yeah. Any any plans in the future to to write more or or uh, write? You know, you'd be you'd be a great guy. Uh, a very interesting read to actually write a, a biography of all all these thirty plus years in the in the wilderness. Oh yeah, it is on Amazon as well. Okay. Um, oh okay. Well, actually, I I have been doing that for a number of years. Uh, so that <clears throat> I I don't know when it'll be a few years, but I'll probably try to get that it's it's pretty much all written already you know yeah, that whole yeah. this is me and this is how i got here kind of a book yeah that'd um, be great i'd love that i'd love that yeah and so yeah uh you can look for it uh eventually i don't know when but it's it's on the back burner. <laughs> it's 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 in the works but on the back burner and uh, i'm okay with that good deal well, cool. And when are you leaving for this season? Are you you uh, all geared up, ready to go out for this? Because uh, we're already into, what, the 7th or 8th of October right now. Yes. Uh, I would normally be out there in the next all week or so getting things prepped. But uh, I have a, a going out with a buddy of mine on a Kodiak brown bear hunt. So <laughs> I'm going to oh. get out there late. I hope to be out there all the first week of November. There you go. There you go. Well, that'll be interesting. Let me know how that brown bear hunt goes. I'd love to hear the details I will. on that one. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Those bears get big down there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just had a couple of buddies. And over I hope to black-tailed deer as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great hunt. Great conversation, Marty. I sure appreciate you coming on. And uh, now I, I, I always try to get the commitment before while we're still on air. Um, if I, if I, if I contact you again, you willing to come back on the show in the future? Sure. I love talking about trapping and hunting. Okay. I, I knew we were going to get along pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has been great, Marty. Thanks again. And, uh, best of luck to you during the brown bear season and during, uh, your upcoming trapping season, for sure. You're going to, you've got, uh, <laughs> Quite the adventure coming up, as, as you do every year this time of year. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, every time I go out there, it's it's a every day is a new adventure, really. 
Yeah. Yep. I, I agree. Um, so looking forward to see how that all unfolds. All right, guys. In the Land of Wilderness, the writings of Marty Mariotto. This is a great book. Highly recommend. It's going to be in the show notes. Uh, grab your copy and, and uh, enjoy it. Marty, until next time, thanks again. My pleasure. I look forward to talking to you again. Sounds great. See you later. All right. Bye-bye. You made it all the way to the end. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. We sure appreciate your support. This is Jim Huntsman signing off and reminding you to check us out at Instagram at The Western Huntsman and on Facebook at The Western Huntsman. And you can also check out the website at thewesternhuntsman.com. Thanks again. We'll see you guys next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.